Well, good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. I am not thrilled at all that it's the end of summer. Uh, I've enjoyed our summer and we're thankful for the time we've had with our family and our kids. I want to point out someone in our church family, a couple young couple in our church family, speaking of family, who uh, got engaged this weekend. Yep. It's always exciting to share news like this with our church family. And so Zachary DeVries and Candace Wright, if you're here, if you would stand. Congratulations, guys. We're very excited for you guys and for what God has in store for you as a couple and as a family as you continue to walk with Christ. So congratulations. Uh, we look forward to that. Um, if you're visiting today, thanks for being here. Uh, we feel honored that you chose to worship with us this morning, and uh, you were already asked about sharing with, on a Connect card that you were here today, but we're particularly glad to have guests with us this morning. Uh, I want to talk to you today about choices. Life is, is literally packed with choices, depending on our work, our family, and our health situation. Maybe, uh, perhaps thousands of choices have to be made every day, and as if life isn't complicated enough, and there aren't enough choices to make, coffee shops and restaurants have made choice-making insanity, if you ask me. Uh, it used to be relatively easy for me to go into a restaurant, to choose a meal, to order coffee at a coffee shop, but it has gotten increasingly difficult now that they have sort of slowly over time decided to cater to every dining and drinking whim imaginable. Have you been to Starbucks lately? Anybody? You, know, you ever get behind that person in line who has the most complicated drink order ever? Uh, I was, whether you, whether you like their coffee or not, maybe you think it's more like cough medicine, but uh, yeah, Ben, thank you, Ben. They certainly do this though, what they do well is they have certainly made their mark in terms of offering people choices and variety. You can have your drink made with any one of three varieties of milk, another three varieties of non-dairy-based milk. There are dozens of sugary or sugar-free toppings that you can put on or in your drink. I did a little research while preparing for my message. I actually went to a Starbucks to do this. I did. And uh, I found what I believe to be the most complicated drink order ever. Uh, here it is. Now I want you to picture yourself. I'm your customer, you're behind the counter, green apron, cup, sleeve, and Sharpie in hand, okay? And I had to read this to her. <laughs> Hi, uh, I will take a tall half-calf ristretto, two-pump, sugar-free, cinnamon dulce, skinny latte at 162 degrees Fahrenheit, please. Seriously, that's what I did this weekend. How do you even fit all of that on a sleeve? In fact, you don't anymore. It's gotten so complicated, now they've gone to a computer print label making system so they can type it into the computer, it prints a label, they stick it on your cup, and then the person reads it all. Mine was a page and a half long. <laughs> ben, who you heard chime in there a minute ago, Ben Curlick is our youth and young adults director, and, and he is a serious coffee aficionado. The guy has an art to making coffee that makes brain surgery look easy. When I shared that drink order with him the other day, uh, he said, that's not coffee. <laughs> it sounded just like that, but here's the thing. 
it's, it's marketed, I'm jealous of your deep voice, your basil voice. It's marketed as coffee, and, and, and here's what I felt. I felt the obnoxious factor rising by like 14.6 million percent just by sharing that order with the barista. She assured me though that it wasn't the most complicated order she's ever received. It was just okay when I drank it. I probably could have had the same effect if I ordered a, uh, just a, a, a plain old uh, pumpkin spice latte. I'll stick with Ben's coffee. Thank you very much. Restaurant menus have gotten ridiculous as well. Uh, they, many, have so many fonts and font sizes and graphics on them now, they're a chaotic mess if you try to look at them and order something off of them. They have more colors and hues and shades of color than Van Gogh ever dreamed of could possibly exist. Add to that those, those unrealistic oversized things that are, you know, it's that picture of what it's gonna look like and then when it arrives you're disappointed. It's like, well, they don't look at all like each other. It's supposed to spur our appetite to make us uh, excited about eating. The problem is I find them overwhelming. Literally, I struggle with menus in restaurants. I just want words. I just want words. Tell me what it is, what's in it, that's all I want. I don't need pictures, I don't need fonts and graphics. I know my family thinks I'm weird, for this and a couple other reasons. Um, but I just can't deal with the graphic chaos when I'm trying to make to place an order. So a long time ago, here's what I decided to do. I decided to become a one or two, maybe depending on the restaurant, a three meal person in any given restaurant. And it's not like I go to a restaurant every week, but the restaurants that I do go to from time to time with my family, I have a couple of choices that I stick to. And so I find a couple of meals on every menu uh, at a given restaurant, and that's all I ever order, ever, from that place, literally. Uh, they may have the best dim sum anywhere on the planet, but I can promise you two things. If I didn't find it the first time or two times I visited that place, I don't even know it exists, and I refuse to be vanquished by the menu, searching for it relentlessly. I will stick with the Szechuan lettuce wraps. Thank you very much. Now, other choices about, you know, more than just, just coffee, there are other choices we make in life about whether it's a, a red hat or a blue hat day, what shoes we're going to wear today. Uh, those, are, those are what I would call sort of the trivial choices in life. They're not super consequential. Other decisions are far more consequential. Some of you are in the midst of making some very important life decisions that will impact not only you, but they may have an impact on your family and your future as well. Going back to school as an adult is a major decision in life. It's more consequential than coffee. Um, changing careers, moving communities, these are some of the things, the decision points that we may face. Then there are relationship decisions. Engagement, like we saw this morning, major decision in life, marriage. Uh, wanting to have and then hoping for children, and then how big will our family be? These are all larger decisions, certainly. For other people, it's finding counseling support to help unpack and process emotional hurts and past traumas, or to help them deal with physical pain. Maybe your situation that you're deciding through now are choices that relate to an illness or a disease that has thrown your, your own life or a loved one's into a state of turmoil. Those are profound choices. 
Then there are those that uh, a pastor I like to read calls the farthest reaching choices. Farthest reaching. Things like, do I believe in God? Does Jesus actually matter? And, and, and if he does, does he affect how I live my life daily? Am I going to pursue God's call on my life in every area of my walk? These are critically important decision points because here's the thing, they're the farthest reaching choices because they have implications in eternity. Now, if you're not 100% sure and you haven't decided exactly where you fall on all of those, I wanna tell you this. I wanna tell you that in, the, in terms of those spiritual decisions, those farthest reaching choices, if you're not sure of those today, it's okay. Because even committed Christians experience doubts. Even people who have been following Jesus a very long time work through doubts and these questions at different times in their lives. And we even from time to time doubt the answers. Thomas spent three years with Jesus. He was called Doubting Thomas. He spent three years walking the earth with Jesus and yet he experienced doubt until he could see and feel Jesus' wounds in the resurrected Christ. If you're experiencing doubts or crisis of faith today, I would encourage you to press on in search of truth because I'm confident that Christ will do for you what he did for Thomas, that he will meet you where you are today. Now, the man we're gonna look at today, um, found in the Old Testament, he certainly was faced with and made many decisions in life. As the first king of Israel, Saul had a huge and lasting impact on the people and the nation. We'll read about him in two places in scripture today. We'll do it in reverse order. We'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, and then we'll go back and we'll look at a, at a section in 1 Samuel 11. If you prefer to thumb your Bible, you might wanna mark those. Otherwise, you can follow on the screen. The story with Saul begins uh, in the setting of a military conflict. The Israelites under Saul's leadership are facing off against the Philistines and the Philistines have managed to strike fear into the hearts of Saul's men. Scripture says that the terrified Israelites hid in caves behind bushes and elsewhere, wherever they could get out of sight, quaking with fear. Now, Saul in this setting had been commanded by God to wait seven days for the arrival of Samuel to show up at the place where the armies now faced one another. Yet despite clear instructions, a command delivered to Saul through Samuel from God himself, Saul gets nervous when some of his troops start to desert. They start to flee and leave and they're no longer there. And he's watching the attrition of his army happen and he gets fearful. And so he prematurely offers a burnt offering to the Lord in order to seek God's favor for what Saul believes is the impending battle. It may have seemed like a good idea. His heart was motivated, certainly, to turn to God, yet in fact, it's actually hard to tell when you read the text here, it's actually hard to tell where exactly Saul departed from the command of the Lord because scripture says he awaited until the appointed time, yet apparently he did not because Samuel shows up and he rebukes Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, read along with me. He says, you, this is Samuel speaking, you, Saul, have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. 
You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your kingdom for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure, for the Lord has sought out a man after his heart, own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That man was David, who Saul would then later treat like an adversary for no good reason. Apparently, Saul didn't think that his decision in that moment was a big deal, but the truth is this. In matters of obedience and obeying God, even the smallest matters are a big deal. Obedience matters, even if it's to the smallest things. If we disobey the Lord in this, we are more likely later to then disobey him in that. If we fail to keep what he's called us to do uh, and, and we rebel against him now, it is easier for our hearts to justify straying in the future and to continue the pattern of sin. And so my question is this, we're all, it's a statement first and then a question, we're all disobedient. I don't think anybody would say I am without sin. We're all disobedient. And so the question is this, in matters of obedience and our walk with God, how are we dealing with our own sinful choices? Because we all make them. Some of us probably this morning. Are we confessing them and learning from them, asking for forgiveness, or are we like Saul, treating them like little things and letting them stack up? Because the little things do stack up, don't they? Saul apparently did not learn his disobedience had thrown his life and his leadership into chaos, but he also continued to become an increasingly jealous and reactionary man, unwilling or incapable of sharing credit with anyone else for fear of losing his own time in the spotlight. He continued to sacrifice his character and to indulge his sin. He persistently justified his wrongs. And while there were occasional moments of contrition with Saul, if you've read his entire story. You know there are times when he came back and he confessed and he repented, asked for forgiveness. Here's the thing, he quickly returned to his wickedness. This pattern further defiles his reputation. It results in the loss of his people's loyalty and ultimately the withdrawal of God's blessing on his leadership. Nobody had forced Saul to take this path. He chose it and he rechose it himself. Have we done the same in our walk with Christ? See, there's a lesson here in regard to our own sin from the life of Saul. Don't excuse and don't justify our sin. Confess it, confess it. To turn from, to agree with. Confess means agree with God that it is wrong. Seek forgiveness and then, most importantly, what Saul did not do then, from that point forward, in that area of our life, as the Holy Spirit reveals and we are led and we confess, we chart a new course forward, a new path in, in our desire to honor God. Because here's the thing, justifying our sin, justifying our wrongs, it only causes more harm than if we confessed it in the first place. Parents, think about your kids. When you've caught them in a disobedient act, you've got them, right? And if they would confess, we would be more likely to extend forgiveness, possibly to lessen consequences, but when they defend and they deny and they lie and they confuse and they hide, the consequences stack up, don't they? Confess 
and seek the Lord's forgiveness? Are we taking time to meaningfully confess our sins to God in a heartfelt way? Are we getting specific with him in those areas where he knows and we are well aware that we consistently fail, that we consistently choose to go our own way? Have we asked another Christian, if this is an area where we continue to struggle, where two or three are joined together, right? God works in those situations. Have we gone to another Christian and asked them to help hold us accountable? Psalm 119 verse 26 says this. It says, I recounted my ways. The psalmist says, I recounted my ways. The Hebrew word means to accurately declare our paths. Lord, I have accurately declared my reality to you, my path. And are we choosing to eradicate those patterns that don't honor him, those sin choices? Because here's the thing, it's a matter of right and wrong, right? It's either right or it's wrong. Years ago, I had a pastoral mentor, a man in New Mexico named Pinson McWhorter, that's actually his name. Uh, he shared how, I told me he has the coolest name I've ever heard, Pinson, never heard the name before. Pinson loved the Lord, uh, walked with him closely, and he, he had this method of making decisions in life so that he would avoid sin and stay on the path that God had for him. It's quite simple, really. His first priority was to examine whatever the issue from this perspective. Is this a right or wrong matter? Is there a right or wrong imperative here? Right being the choice that honors God and is therefore not sin, wrong obviously being sinful. Pinson's approach reminds me of what I, something I read in Genesis this week where Genesis chapter four, it says, if you do what is right, the Hebrew word means pleasing, you will be accepted. But if you do what is do not do what is right, what is pleasing. Sin, it says, is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Another verse in Proverbs, we're told that the Lord is more pleased when we do what is right and what is just than when we offer him sacrifices. The Hebrew word there for doing what is right, it translates as righteous. The Lord is more pleased when we do what is righteous than when we bring him sacrifices, something Saul would have done well to remember when he faced off against the enemy army on the battlefield. The Lord was concerned with his decision to do right more than he was interested in his offering. If the decision for Pinson was not a matter of right or wrong, then it simply, it became a matter of right or left. Uh, the example he gave me was choosing a career path. He said, would you continue to, to serve the Lord if you were to choose this path? And then the opposite, would you continue to serve him faithfully if you chose this path? Going left is an option if it honors God, if it's in his will, if it is in obedience to him. Going right remains an option as well. The reality is that in right or left decisions, neither of them will lead us to be found in sin. God has established right and wrong. If it's not right or wrong, the decision is ours. James wrote this, Jesus' half-brother. He said that whoever knows the right thing to do yet fails to do it, for him, it is sin, where God has told us what is right and honorable and pleasing and just. Our failure to do that is sin. Saul knew, he knew. He knew what was right, but he continued to make sinful choices. 
And this is the thing about sinful choices. They, they don't just affect us, they have consequences, sometimes limited to us. But Saul's life painfully illustrates how our sin can wreak havoc and spread devastation in the lives of other people. Toward the end of Saul's life and the end of, the, of uh, 1 Samuel, shortly before Saul is ringed in, surrounded by the enemy and ends up taking his own life, just prior to that, his three sons were killed in battle. Saul's disobedience led to the death of his three sons. Scripture tells us that Saul was then, he killed himself and his body was taken by his enemies. His body was beheaded and his, along with the bodies of his three sons, were hung on the wall as trophies for the enemy. He knew what was right, but his decisions cost him everything. His hard heart had destroyed his potential and the Lord removes Saul as king because he forgot that doing what right is right matters. In his writing to the Galatian church, the apostle Paul encourages, uh, encourages them and he says this, let us not become weary in doing good. The Greek word for good means approved. And so when we read it in that context, let us not become weary for doing what is approved. It ends and it says, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If we continue to do what is approved, what is right, what is pleasing, we will reap a harvest. If it's a matter of right or wrong, do what's approved. Because ultimately, in doing what's approved, it's the only way we can finish well. And finishing well is more important than how we started. Finishing well in our walk with God and a lifetime with Jesus is more important than how we began. So my question to you is this, are you, am I, are we readying ourselves? Are we preparing to do only what is right? Because it's right. The BC Wildfire Service, they go through a lot of preparation. They buy supplies, they maintain equipment, they position resources, they repair equipment, they hire and train people, they plan contingencies all for what may come. They do it well in advance of fire season. All for what may come because it's the right thing to do, to be prepared so that when the moment of decision arrives, they are prepared. When they are, loss and damage is reduced. It's tough to see that this summer. It's been a tough summer in BC. And then no doubt they'll learn some things from it and they'll prepare differently in the future. If they sat back and didn't prepare, we, they would literally be victims to whatever happens. The same is true spiritually with us. If we just sit back unprepared, we will become victims of our own decisions. But when we prepare, there's a state of readiness, there's a mindset that takes over in our brains. In the same way, we prepare our kids for school, don't we? Many of us are going through this right now. We're adjusting sleep routines. If you haven't started already, Tuesday morning might be rough. We purchase school supplies. We reset schedules and calendars. Uh, my son has his first soccer practice on Wednesday. We're already thinking about that. We're thinking about what is a normal week from this point forward going to look like so that we can be ready. When we prepare to do what's right in life, when we prepare to keep the commands of the Lord, we're always gonna find ourselves in his will. The desired outcome is always going to happen when we follow obediently. And we're going to do what Saul was not able to do. We're going to leave a lasting and a positive legacy 
for followers of Jesus, being prepared, doing right, being ready, should be a top priority. Saul began his life, this is where we go back to chapter 11, he began with so much promise, handpicked by God. In many ways, Saul was a giant of a man, not just physically, though scripture says that he did stand a head taller than everyone else. In other ways, he proved himself small and weak, as we've already read. He was also said to be the most handsome man in all of Israel. And while those are not qualifications for spiritual health and spiritual leadership, he was also quite humble in the beginning. Hard to tell if you look at the end of his life where arrogance dominated, disobedience ran everything. But in the beginning, Saul was quite humble. He ends up being, as we know, a sad example, his life ser serving as a warning against our indulging in sin. But it didn't start that way. It started out very positively. His rise to power, if you don't know, began when he met Samuel, whom Saul knew to be a prophet, a seer. He knew that Samuel was one who spoke for the Lord. The Lord had already spoken to Samuel, and he told him that he was going to meet a man chosen by God to deliver his people, the Israelites, from their enemy, the hand of the Philistines. The very next day, Samuel goes out, and he catches sight of Saul. And in that moment, God speaks to him and he says, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul, Samuel had every reason to go, seriously? And yet he didn't. At the Lord's instruction, Samuel goes to Saul and he invites him to a meal in his honor that night. There, he told Saul that the spirit of the Lord would shortly come upon him and that he would be transformed into a new man. Saul was understandably taken aback. He was understandably surprised because to that point in his life, Saul had been a simple farmer and a livestock handler for his father. In fact, the only reason Saul had gone to seek Samuel in the first place was to find out where he should search for his father's missing donkeys. Add to that, Saul was also from the smallest clan and the smallest tribe in all of Israel, so he had no reason to think very much of himself, certainly not beyond his position. He wouldn't have known that the Lord had eyed him for leadership of his people, let alone for king. Leadership and king, different levels there, but he, he wouldn't have known that God was looking at him as a leader, but God had a purpose for Saul's life. Saul's confirmed at age 30 as king, first king of Israel, and initially, the Israelites, they didn't take to him very well. And, and I mean, who would? Until now, he's been a farmer and, and a livestock herder. And so they're, they're thinking on, on a different level in terms of leaders. Saul wasn't even sure of himself. Whatever the cause of their doubts, the Israelites, what happened next changed everything for them and for Saul. The Lord said he would be transformed into a new man. He was. The Ammonites were enemies of the Israelites. In what's now modern-day Jordan, they had been oppressing two of the Israelite tribes, and their king had instructed his men to take the Israelites captive and to gouge out their right eyes as a way of bringing shame on the entire nation. The situation is dire. They're not able to do anything to overcome the enemy, and so those who could fled on foot to another area. The Ammonites pursued them to that city, lay siege to it, and gave them the alternative of surrendering. The Israelites actually offered to subjugate themselves to the Ammonite king, and he said, I will entertain what you have proposed if you will also allow us to gouge out your right eyes. What an offer. He then graciously gave them a week to think about it. Desperate for help, as you can imagine. 
desperate for help, word is sent to Saul. We pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. When Saul heard their words, those from the Israelites who brought him the message of distress, when he heard their words, the Spirit of, the God, of God came upon him in power, as Samuel had told him. And he burned with anger, it says. Verse 7, he took a pair of oxen, he cut them into pieces, and he sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Samuel, Saul and Samuel. It says, then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man, meaning they were united together. They were galvanized behind the leadership of Saul and Samuel. Verse eight, when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, that's the town where the Israelites were sort of surrounded by the Ammonites, say to those men, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. Saul sent word back, hey, we're coming. Filled with God's power, Saul had decided to do what the Lord had led him to do, to do what was right. He galvanized the people, he slaughtered the Ammonites, he scattered them to the point where no two could come together to threaten the tribes of Israel again. Then it was obvious to the people that God had ordained Saul's leadership and that he had prepared him to lead. Saul had chosen well. He had a very good start. He could have had a strong and God-honoring reign. He could have ended well perhaps even passed the throne to one of his sons as a legacy of honoring God. But to finish well, he would have to obey God. He would have to submit and do what was right. He would have to be honest and repentant regarding his sin, and he was not any of those things. As we've seen, he chose unwisely in each case. And so the question is this. Spiritual leadership takes preparation, so how are we preparing in life for what God is doing now, for where he is leading us now. How are we preparing? Now, spiritual readiness and preparation is not about our having created the perfect moment. There, it's about managing daily what I am responsible for. Readiness, spiritual preparation, honoring God in my life is about managing daily what the Lord will hold me accountable for. I am responsible for my walk with Christ. I am responsible to be prepared. And that means that I have put thought and prayer and time into how I'm going to live my life, how I'm going to serve God faithfully in ministry. It means that I have sought the Lord and his instruction by spending time in his word. It means that I have spent time in prayer, allowing, as Brent said this morning, for God to speak to me. Have I been still? Have I been quiet? Have I listened? for the voice and the leading of the Lord. It means that I have a burden for other people. I'm concerned about the salvation of others. It means even the people that, this will shock you, even the people that I don't like necessarily. We all have those. Yet are we being obedient to how God has called us to be ministers of the gospel, to represent Christ? Preparation helps ensure that I am ready when the Lord leads, that I'm not caught off guard and that I will follow obediently when he presses something on my heart and he gives me an opportunity to serve him, whether it's in my work setting, whether it's through my kids and their sports, our neighborhood, our vocational activities that we do outside of church and family, are we spiritually prepared, you and I, 
to do the right thing? Are we committed to avoiding sinful choices? And are we willing to confess when we've gone the wrong way? As the musicians come back to the stage this morning, I want to leave you with this thought. We can't live, we can't afford to live as if the commands of God don't mean anything. We can't afford to categorize big commands, small commands, strong suggestions, right? We can't afford to treat them as if they don't matter. If we play fast and loose with scripture, if we are not prepared to obey God, you and I, it will catch up to us and we will suffer the consequences. And while the consequences may not hit immediately, they may not show up today, they may not be catastrophic for us. Saul's life is the perfect, perfect example that if we choose sin, if we choose to sin against God sooner or later, as scripture says, our sin will find us out and we and others will pay a price. Be prepared, church. Be prepared. Spend time with him this week. Do right. Decide ahead of time, I will serve and honor the Lord. It's the only way to honor him. It's the only reason we have to expect his blessing, that we have been obedient. And it's the only way and the most powerful way to draw others to question, to pursue, to consider faith in Jesus Christ. Stand with me, if you will, as we pray. Father, thank you for time together today. As we reflect humbly, God, we come before you and we confess that we are not without sin. God, that we have gone our own way, that we have strayed, that we have been disobedient and unfaithful. And God, you have remained steadfast and faithful. For your character is love and grace and mercy. So God, this morning, in a humble, sincere way, God, we come before you and we lay down our burdens. We confess our sin. And God, in the quiet moments as we sing, may we reflect on what Brent said earlier. May we be still, Lord, and know that you are God. For your word says you will be exalted in the nations and you will be exalted among the, the earth. Those are facts, Father, and we agree with you. God, speak to our hearts in these quiet, still moments. Help us to confess, lift our burdens so that this week we can be prepared, we can be guiltless, and we can press into serving and loving you in the holy and the powerful name of Jesus so that others are drawn to him. Amen.